Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber, but you can just call me Dubber, everyone else does. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and this here is the MTF Podcast. Now, it occurs to me that in recent weeks, we've been getting quite legal on the show. A couple of weeks ago, for instance, music tech lawyer and investment advisor Cliff Fluet. A few weeks before that, music industry digital rights law expert Vicky Norman, and before that, leading industry lawyer Rusko Petakovic talking copyright. And, well, to be fair, it's a big and complex issue, and it's absolutely central, not only to the music industries in the tech sector, but to the whole of the creative and cultural industries, and by extension through intellectual property in the digital age, all of industry. It raises lots of important questions, from music licensing to innovative new services, to blockchain registration of IP and beyond. And so who better to shine a light on all of this than entertainment attorney, strategist, Berklee College music business lecturer, chief legal officer at Verify Media, and the author of Music Law in the Digital Age, Copyright Essentials for Today's Music Business, Alan Bargfried. As usual, I was as interested, if not more so, in how he works as I was in the mechanics of how copyright works, because more than a technology industry, more than a rights industry, more than a music industry even, this is a people industry. And Alan Bargfried, he's good people. From Oregon, but just as at home in France, perhaps the most European of Americans, Alan Bargfried. Enjoy. Alan Bargfried, thanks so much for joining us for the MTF podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. No problem. You're described as a number of things, uh, a consultant, a lawyer, uh, somebody who's into media, design, music, technology. Where do you come into this at? What's Where's the starting point for you? Yeah, you know, I think that my career has really been focused over the past 20, 25 years on, on the creative arts and the intersection of creative arts and technology. So Uh, I fit into that in a number of different ways. My background is as a lawyer, but I do a a lot of work that's kind of focused on the future of music and strategy. Uh, And, you know, I co-founded a company a few years ago called Verify Media, and I am the the chief legal and chief strategy officer for that company. And so I think that indicates a little bit that merger between those two pieces of what I do. So uh, a lot of copyright work, a lot of looking at how, uh, you know, artists and copyright owners are protected and, and how that kind of merges together with technology. Right. Did you come at this from, uh, well, I'm interested in law and this kind of law is really interesting or did you, I'm interested in music and music needs a lawyer? Uh, you know, I got started because I was in law school and I had I was living in Austin and I had uh, a couple of friends that were musicians and I got uh-huh. really into the idea of management. And so I was managing uh, a, a couple of local artists and then I, I went on to do some more work uh, after law school as a manager, uh, a personal assistant, music attorney. But I really came into it through kind of a love for music and and that blended with the fact that I happened to be in law school and happened to start doing some work in the music industry. Mm -hmm. And there's a really strong technological thread to what you do. I mean, you mentioned uh, Verify and that is, I mean, that's a tech company, I guess. Is that fair to say? It is. And it's a tech company for the music industry. And so I I feel like I also came into the music industry right right as this collision of technology and music were occurring. So I graduated from law school in 1999 
And, you know, that was pretty much the year that Napster was developed. And that was the year where year zero. where all of the uh, Silicon Valley folks started to butt heads with the L.A. creatives in California. Uh, and, and, you know, there was two very different cultures and different ways of working that I think have, have really blended and have come together to understand each other now. But, you know, at the time, there was very much a, a dichotomy between those two cultures. Hmm. And as a lawyer, and this is something I wonder about lawyers all the time, actually, as a lawyer, do you have a strong position on what the law should be regarding copyright? Or do you just have a responsibility to make sure that given the laws that we have, these people behave in these ways? I have a pretty strong opinion about what copyright should do and how it should protect. Yeah. Is it going all right? Is it, or is it going in the right direction or? Uh, it's going in the right direction in some ways. And I think that it's going, uh, I wouldn't say in the wrong direction in other ways. I would say that there are some legacy things that, that exist, um, that have caused problems. So, you know, I mentioned verify as a company that I co-founded and what we're trying to do is, is provide better data management for the music industry. And, and this is something that's a, a, incredible problem as you look at kind of digital music and tracking rights and tracking and understanding who owns what with respect to songs and sound recordings. And the reason that this is a problem is because uh, the Berne Convention, which is the largest international treaty for copyright, uh, has a clause that says that any signatory country cannot require registration as a prerequisite for uh, having a copyright. And uh, I completely understand and agree with uh, what they were trying to do. They were trying to remove any administrative and financial burden on creators to actually having protection for their work. But what it has done, the side effect has been that there is no central repository or database with respect to understanding who owns what and how to make appropriate royalty payments. And so I think that that particular issue can be resolved. You don't have to require registration in order for a creator to have protection, but you can start to require registration in order to be able to receive royalties. So it doesn't, it wouldn't obviate, you know, whether it wouldn't take away your copyright, the fact that you didn't register it. But if you, if you do want to be paid, uh, you know, there realistically from a common sense perspective needs to be some kind of registration requirement so that you do, uh, get paid. And so, uh, you know, I come at this with, with a background in both, you know, predominantly American law, but I've spent a number of years living in Europe and have come to understand a lot of the kind of EU directives, the way the EU system is set up as well. And, the U.S. is much more of a fractured music market, and uh, you probably have bigger problems in the U.S. with respect to these rights uh, and data management issues. So I think that that things there are some legacy things within copyright that I think uh, are causing problems that could be changed, and I think that there are other kind of positive developments for creators as as time goes by. And a lot of it also has to do with just you know copyright in a lot of countries was written a long time ago and and it's it needs to be updated for uh, the technologies that we're seeing today just uh, first principles what's copyright for copyright is to protect a work and to incentivize the creator to actually create so you know copyright allows an owner to control their creative work you know, there's a set of basic exclusive rights that, that come with copyright that are a little bit different depending on which territory you're in. Mm -hmm. But it is to protect that work 
protect what the creator is creating, but also incentivize them to create. And so provide some kind of structure that they can be compensated for it. Uh, and, you know, many musicians are part-time musicians and others are, are full-time musicians and are trying to earn a living from being uh, creators. And so copyright was created to incentivize that. Right. So what you're saying is that the protection of works is what copyright does and incentivizing people to make more cool stuff is why it does that. Yes. Is that right? Exactly. Right. Okay. So we know that copyright is doing its job well when A, people's works are being protected and B, it's set up in such a way that it encourages people to make more good stuff. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's... And that people can be, you know, that people, uh, artists, whether you're, you know, a musician or a screenwriter or a, a photographer or whatever you may be, can earn a living from what they're doing. Right. And, uh, you know, that incentivizes people to spend their time on creative arts as opposed to some other activity where they need to, you know, make money to feed their family or, or buy a house or whatever. Right. Because that seems like a really good litmus test for whether we're doing copyright well or not. Is it doing those two things, I guess? Right. Yeah. Are, are the works protected? You know, yeah. you know, can someone take my creative work and do whatever they want with it? And, you know, change the words and lyrics to my song and re re-release it without my permission. Can I, as a creator, earn money from my work? I think those are kind of the two core principles of copyright. Mm -hmm. But it gets messy pretty quick, I guess. It does, especially as you start to have, you know, things like uh, different technological devices that weren't contemplated by copyright, as we just discussed. Sure. So is, I mean, I, I guess, you know, I don't want to jump to the end, but is blockchain the answer to all this? Uh, I don't, you know, is blockchain the answer? I think blockchain technology deployed in the right way can help to solve some of the data problems. It's not, I wouldn't call it the answer. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, there's other technologies, there's other legal changes that can be made to help, you know, further incentivize creators and make sure that folks are being paid properly. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we at Verify believe that enterprise blockchain products and, and, you know, what we're doing is very much an enterprise blockchain technology system as opposed to a payment in Bitcoin or some cryptocurrency type thing has a role to play. And so, you know, I, I emphasize this every time when I speak to people, because a lot of people hear blockchain and they still think of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, and I'm going to put my music out on the web and someone's going to pay me in some weird currency that I can't, you know, ever get any money out of. Sure. And that's not what we're doing. I mean, what we're doing is... Is that still a thing? Is that still something that people are doing or, or is that, have we moved on from that? Uh, you know, I think there are some companies out there that are still doing that. I think that that was... Uh, very 2017, if you want to right. want to label it with a year. But I think that, you know, and there may be a place for that. But crypto kind of remains a, a, a different world. You know, it's been adopted in some areas, but not. it's not what we're trying to do. Right. 2017, interestingly, it was also the year that the second edition of your book came out, The Music Law in the Digital Age, which yes. was a re sort of revised version of, what was it 2009? The original 2009 and there's a 20 2020 or 2021 if i can get one last segment to my publisher coming any minute <laughs> right because i was going to say 2017 2017 was like 35 years ago yeah. now uh, so i mean what's changed uh you know it's significantly with respect to copyright there's been two major changes one was the eu directive on copyright that came about uh, a couple of years ago and is now being implemented by the member states mm. 
And so that has some changes, particularly with respect to user-generated content sites. Uh, and then in the US, the Music Modernization Act was passed in late 2018. And so that has some changes with respect to how creators are being paid uh, and some of the registration requirements that I alluded to earlier. And, and mm-hmm. so actually, you know, having a central repository called the MLC to register to receive uh, mechanical royalties for songwriters in the U.S. Right. And so, I, you know, those are two pretty significant changes. The MMA certainly was the biggest change for music uh, in the U.S. In, in, you know, 20, 25 years. And uh, I guess... I mean, there are obviously there are changes that can be made to the law, but there are also technologies that can be implemented that, you know, make up for the gaps. So rather than just challenging the law with new technologies, for instance, the the registration thing, there are technologies, I understand, where when you make something using a particular piece of software, it will register those things for you. Are those sorts of solutions kind of another way of solving the same problem? They are. And I mean, I think even, you know, a lot of those systems that would allow you to enter information at the point of creation, uh, it can be very, very valuable. And I you know, just to go back to the EU directive, I think your point on the evolution of technology is important here, because uh, both the US and Europe had the safe harbor clause, which allowed user generated content sites like YouTube to uh, essentially not pay royalties as long as they were fell behind the safe harbor and they took these certain steps that, you know, including responding to takedown notices. Mm-hmm. And the EU responded and removed that safe harbor in their new directive on copyright. And, and that part of that was a recognition that content recognition technology has come a long way since that safe harbor was first put into place. Uh, you know, that was... Uh, 98 in the U.S. in the year 2000 in Europe, and now you're you're 20 years later, and YouTube has the ability to recognize almost every single song using content ID and other technology uh, that's going up on their platform. And so uh, that was a a law change that I think came about as a result of uh, you know these new technologies. It sounds like the U.S. and Europe are going off in slightly different directions as uh, as regards these sorts of things. Is that going to cause problems long term? Because we're talking about international repertoire. There's one rule in one place and one rule in another place. How? I mean, does that just make more work for lawyers, I guess? Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's something that already exists, right? Like no two countries have exactly the same copyright law. And, you know, you've got to go to SESEM in France or PRS in the UK or, or different licensing entities in different territories. And I do think that there are, again, there's different, Different laws in different territories. I think changes are moving. Uh, you know, interestingly, the U.S. put out a report really several weeks ago about uh, safe harbor and whether that should be changed in the U.S. The U.S. is looking at Europe, uh, and in this particular case, Europe may be taking the lead, and and you might see a change in U.S. law as a result, or maybe not. I mean, the the political climate in the U.S. Uh, for change or for any legislative action is difficult right now. Right, for sure. You've been involved in some cases, like uh, actual where things are being disputed in court about, you know, copyright infringement, and those sorts of things. How does that play? Is it like uh, courtroom dramas in the movies, or is it a little bit more restrained than that? I don't think it's courtroom drama, like drama, like in the movies. I mean, I think that you know, you get the courtroom drama uh, for the movies and these, you know, multi-billion-dollar class action lawsuits against Spotify. But you know, I, I think. Uh, 
there's a number of these cases that are floating about. There's a, you know, there are cases like the uh, Robin Thicke, Pharrell Williams, Marvin Gaye case that came about a few years ago that I think really uh, opened a lot of eyes and, and uh, you know, had people standing up saying maybe this was not a correct ruling or maybe, you know, cheering the ruling. But I think this, this kind of stuff is happening all the time where, where, you know, either a songwriter feels like one of their songs has been taken without permission or uh, a new technology has arrived uh, that is, uh, you know, does not fit legally within copyright law. And I think that one of the things about the interplay between technology and copyright is that you have cases that turn very much on the way the technology was built, right? You could enable the same thing to the consumer in different ways. And if you enable it in one way, it's legal. And if you enable it in another way, it's not legal. And the end results of the consumer may be completely the same. Right. But the way the the system works in the back end. You mean like the mechanics of it? Yeah, the mechanics of who's making a copy and where the copy is being stored and who's actually making the copy can make a difference when it comes down to copyright. And so technology companies have to keep that in mind. So you teach this or a variety of this at uh, Berkeley College of Music, as well as some innovation stuff and and entrepreneur, I guess, lessons and and those sorts of things. How does your role at uh, Berkeley sort of weave those things together? Yeah, so, you know, I I, um, joined Berkeley College of Music as faculty about almost 15 years ago at this point, and I've been teaching for them wow. uh, ever since. I've been in a number of roles for them, you know, ranging from pure faculty member teaching to launching a program for them in Valencia, Spain, to creating a think tank called Rethink Music. We've done a lot of work around this kind of intersection of music and technology and the future of music. Uh, and we launched that in, in 2010, right as I think the music industry was really at the depths of its abyss from from the move to digital. And so, you know, I remember we had a, a major conference in Boston in 2011 and, you know, people were, it was right as Spotify was entering the U.S. And people were really starting, I think, to recognize that perhaps streaming was the future. But, uh, you know, we've, we've tried to do a lot at Berkeley towards entrepreneurship, towards uh, helping a, a new generation of students come out into the workforce. And, and, you know, I think we've been successful. There's, there's Berkeley grads uh, pretty much at every music company around the world. Mm. Is being an entrepreneur part and parcel of being a musician now, do you think? Of course. I mean, you know, any, any person who's a musician who is more than a musician by hobby, and by that I mean someone who's trying to make money from their art, uh, is an entrepreneur. And so they need to have some certain set of entrepreneurship skills, uh, you know, ranging from, you know, just just how to collect money, how to market themselves, how to how to set up a business, how to operate a business, uh, and I think a lot of that, you know, is sometimes difficult when you're trying to be both a business person as well as a as a creator. You know, how much time do you spend on each? Uh, particularly when you're a new artist, you have to figure out uh, with your limited number of hours in a day. Uh, do you need to be creating, you know, five new Instagram stories, or do you need to be writing a new song? Yeah, for sure. And particularly that uh, the the variables have changed, I guess, over the last few months. We're, we're in a quite a different time. W- what have been the things that you've seen have been sort of the most profound impact of that, other than, the, you know, the obvious things that we see, like somebody can't go and play live to an audience. Um, but from where you're sitting, what do you think of the things that people should be paying attention to? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a number of artists, right, that are that are hurting, and and a lot of it is the smaller and mid tier artists that are not in the you know top numbers on Spotify that do depend on touring and merchandise for income. And so, you know, I have some clients that are you know they're playing live streams for for PayPal tips, and they're you know some of them have been fairly successful. I think that this move to online interaction has a positive and negative aspect to it, right? So now all of a sudden you have live stream concerts and you can access anyone in the world anytime. So you can bring together your entire fan base from anywhere in the world to, to you know, watch you play in your living room or, or wherever you've managed to secure a venue. The problem is that every other artist in the world has the same opportunity. And so, you know, you may have uh, 20, 30, 50 of these shows going on at any given moment. And so, you know, there's, uh, there's certainly, I think, an amount of online fatigue as well. I mean, I know, mm. you know, personally, I spend a lot of time on Zoom and, and video conferences and, and uh, even trying f- to participate in, you know, conferences. Medium was online this year and I found it difficult to, you know, to spend more time on Zoom than I already do. There was some great material, but, you know, I, I think it's the same challenge for artists that are trying to move to this online environment you know, trying to access their fans. Uh, I think that, you know, there was an appeal in the New York Times a couple of days ago for for um, fans to go out and actually spend money on buying music. So, you know, artists are hurting. Go buy, go buy their vinyl, go buy their t-shirt, go buy what you can from, from this person that you like to ensure that they can get back out on the road and be there for you when this is all over. Sure. Because I guess the value proposition of sitting and watching a video on your laptop, as opposed to actually going to a large venue and dancing, there's a monetary difference in what you'd expect to pay for that experience. So maybe uh, you can't quite charge the tickets that you used to be able to charge. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm surprised that we haven't seen more uh, kind of in the way of, of VR and some of the other more immersive technologies. This is a great time for that that type of technology really to step forward when people are, you know, stuck at home and and not able to see music or sports or do the other things that they'd like to do. Mm. Are the students coming through Berkeley thinking about music in in those kind of terms and in new ways, or do they very much want to join bands, go on tour, make albums, you know, sign uh, posters, that sort of thing? I think it depends on the student. I mean, you know, Berkeley has uh, at any given moment almost 5,000 students enrolled and we are a conservatory at heart, but uh, a very strong music business and music production program. And, and, you know, we haven't reached into areas like music therapy. Uh, And so I think everyone that comes to Berkeley, uh, you know, has maybe a slightly different interest. Uh, But I, you know, what I found in my many years is that the cool thing about the Berkeley students is they're all there because they're passionate about music. They know that music is what they want to do, whether that's, you know, being a manager or being a songwriter. Uh, And I think you don't get that at some other institutions that, you know, maybe you just have college students that are going to college and, and trying to find their way in life. There's been some interesting research projects come out of Berkeley. I know last time you and I spoke was about a medical research project that was going through. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and some of the other projects that are going on uh, with your, your students there? Yes, yeah, so, uh, Berkeley recently launched a music and uh, medicine institute, or I, I think it's maybe the music and health institute. So we did a, a study 
uh, still yet unpublished, hopefully published soon, uh, with respect to the use of music as medicine. And so not, not traditional music therapy, meaning playing the instrument, but the ability to uh, actually treat someone for various conditions through active music listening. So there's been a, a lot of studies that, you know, if you spend 15 or 20 minutes actively listening to music, uh, you can have these various neurotransmitter and dopamine effects in a brain that can offset chronic pain or Alzheimer's or, or many other uh, neurological diseases. And I think that it's, it's a really profound area of study that, that people are looking more and more into. But the key to this is that it has to be active listening. It's not, uh, you know, I was listening to music in the car while I was driving or I was listening to music while I was running or going through the metro. It has to be, you know, you're hearing the, the violin and you're hearing it and you're engaging with it on a very singular basis. It's not a background for, you know, your, your work that you're doing while at the office. Mm. And so I found that to be a really interesting study. You know, as part of that, uh, you know, we looked at really development also of, of children and so how music develops within children's minds and this, this idea that there's a, a very sensitive period for music education that exists prior to age seven. Much like language skills, if you start your children learning an instrument or learning music before the age of seven, it, it's much easier for them to pick up and it will be much more of a part of their personality and life and, and they can much more easily grasp the concept of music if you start them before the age of seven. So I have uh, small kids that are twins. And, and so now every day I'm thinking about how I can further immerse them into music before they hit the age of seven. Right, right. You got instruments in mind. I know you mentioned violin earlier. Is that sort of, is it, is that an indicator as what sort of music is good for you? No, I mean, I think that, that what, uh, you know, with respect to the study and listening, it's what, you know, what you are, are interested in. Um, there have been, you know, certain studies around types of music that can impact you. But what, you know, what some studies have shown is that it's what you're passionate about. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you are a passionate hip hop fan uh, and that's what re releases the dopamine for you, then, you know, maybe listening to Mozart isn't going to be what really has benefits for you. With Alzheimer's patients, they've found that, you know, what, what often brings back or helps them is listening to these songs that are, you know, probably from a childhood or from a generation ago. Yeah, interesting. You mentioned Rethink Music before as a think tank. What do you think about? We have thought about a lot of different things over the years. It's, uh, you know, as I said, it's really been about the future of the music business, you know, focused on copyright law changes, streaming, things like royalty. We put out a uh, report in 2015 around the convoluted royalty structure that has existed. And, and we talked about that a little bit earlier. But it's really been, you know, this intersection, again, of technology and music and, and what is the future and you know, thinking about the various ways that music plays a role in our lives. And, and again, a lot of it has been that intersection of music and technology that I think has been so prevalent in, in my career, but also has been so important over the past 20 years as, as we've moved to this idea of, of digital music. But we've uh, looked at music as medicine. We've looked at uh, music royalties. We've looked at copyright law. We've looked at new business models. Uh, you know, what are some of the models for the future? And, and you know, one that uh, we spent some time exploring was this idea of crowdfunding concerts, mm -hmm. which I still believe is a um, is a viable idea for the music industry. And, and maybe it's something that after, you know, post-pandemic will 
come to fruition a little bit more, but it's something that has just never really taken off. And I don't know if it's been because there hasn't been a company that has executed on it properly. Uh, Is it because the large promoters like Live Nation and others aren't interested in this type of thing? But, you know, I still believe that it's it's something that uh, holds promise. Do you mean uh, fans gathering together and saying, we want to hear your band in our town, and if we get enough people together, you'll come and play here? Is it that sort of thing? Exactly. Right. Exactly. We'll prepay the tickets, and, you know, if we can show that that we, you know, raised $400,000, $40,000, that, that you'll show up and you'll play the gig in, in my town because we've proven that it's worthwhile for you to come here. Right. Right. Which takes, I guess, some of the gamble out of, out of touring. Right. And so that's why, you know, maybe it's something that as a result of COVID and people trying to get back to work afterwards, it will have a, a real, um, a real future. But, uh, I, you know, I was an advisor to a company that was doing this for a while and they ran into, you know, a variety of challenges with it, but I still think that it's something that maybe again, just needs to be properly executed on. And if you think about it, streaming music as a, as a concept was around for quite a number of years before it became. Uh, popular. I mean, I was a subscriber to Napster, the legitimate streaming service in 2005, 2006, long before, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Spotify or other technologies existed. And it was a mindset shift that needed to happen on the, on the part of the consumer to get away from the idea of I have to own my music. But I think it was also just a, um, it was a knowledge of the model idea, right? It, it, that, that, you know, it wasn't until Spotify entered the U.S. with a Facebook integration in 2011 that Spotify really took off, at least in the U.S. Uh, and it was because of the Facebook integration where people could see that, you know, your friend Joe or whatever can is now listening to this song on Spotify. And so people started to think about, well, what is this Spotify thing? And, and then the model grew. But it was, we're in 2020 and it, it's taken a tremendous amount of time for that access-based model to, to take off. Yeah. I mean, just to go back to your book for a second, and the title is the phrase digital age. And I mean, I guess, I mean, for the music industry, it's been over 20 years we've been in this digital age, or long, much longer if you think that CDs, of course, are digital. Previous ages had a beginning and an end. Are we seeing an end of a digital age and going into something else? And if so, what would that be? I don't think we're moving out of a digital age yet. I think you have brought up a question in the back of my mind, which is, does the book still need to be titled Music Law in the Digital Age? Because we are, we're in a perpetual digital age, I think. You know, we're, right. we're in an online world that is not changing. This is the world that we're living in. It's not a... Of course, perpetually changing, but the digitalness isn't going away. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, when I first wrote the book 11 years ago, it was we were entering a digital age and we are not exiting it anytime in the near future, I think. Sure. Um, one of the things that you've noticed, because you spend a lot of time in Europe... Uh, or you have done, obviously not doing so much right at this moment, but you, culturally different within the music industries between those two places, or US and Europe, I mean. I think the Europe is a little bit more collaborative. I think that US is a little bit more competitive, just on a whole. I mean, I think you see there may be a slight more willingness to work together. So, you know, I give the example of the Music Managers Forum, which is pretty prevalent in the UK mm-hmm. uh, and pushes for for changes to laws, et cetera. And, and is really kind of a, and also um, 
you know, the Featured Artist Coalition and some of these other organizations that, you know, France has one called Legam that are really interested in helping independent creators and, and managers. And you don't see that in the U.S. And the managers and folks that I've talked to in the U.S. So they uh, don't have the time to deal with it. They're focused on, you know, being competitive with others. And so I think that's one major difference. I think the other, you know, frankly, tremendous difference between the U.S. and Europe is the willingness of the EU to fund cultural projects. And, and I know that uh, I think even you guys at, at MTF have been or, or were launched as part of uh, one of these. And I think it's it's an amazing thing. You know, Canada and North America also is doing a lot of cultural arts funding. And, and so even, you know, COVID related in the UK, they just announced a $2 billion fund for music venues and others. And so I think you get a lot more support for culture and maybe the idea that culture is more valuable in Europe. And, and you know, I, I say culture as a whole, but, you know, music is certainly valued more at an institutional level than it is in, in the U.S. I think in the U.S. you see music programs are the first ones to get cut from, from schools when the budgets get tight. And so in Europe, there's a much greater recognition that, that um, they should spend money to promote the arts. And, and I think it's, it's a fantastic thing. And yet that's not where you are by choice. Uh, you know, by choice, although, uh, you know, that may change again soon. <laughs> All right. I'll leave that one open. Yeah. I mean, I've been, I've been back and forth. And so for family reasons, we've been living back in the U S for about three years, but, uh, mm -hmm. there may be a appendix shift coming again. Is on that note, I guess, is verify COVID proof, geography proof. Can you do that from anywhere? Can you, uh, work from home? indefinitely or or is this not that sort of business yeah we are permanently i guess decentralized business and that we have folks in uh, los angeles new york uh, portland oregon which is where i am today and london uh, and uh, we don't actually have an office in any of those places we've had from time to time some co-working spaces but you know in general everyone Works remotely. Uh, I think you know we have a we have a staff right now of around eleven. I think as as we and as well as some contractors. As we grow, we may find ourselves in an office. But uh, COVID has not impacted us from an office space perspective at all. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, obviously there are other challenges. You know, with COVID and you know the music industry is hurting in a lot of places. Although recorded music is doing incredibly well. Uh, uh, you've had some experience with uh, with serious illness. Has COVID been particularly worrying for you? Yes, I, I've thought about this recently. Actually, whether whether I'm I'm more worried about COVID than some folks, and I think so. I mean, I think I uh, I hear stories that it's not it's not that big of a deal for younger generations, but it strikes very close to home when I hear stories of how COVID continues to have ongoing symptoms. So I've read a number of articles about folks that, you know, are having neurological difficulties or ongoing cough or, you know, they got sick in March and they're not well uh, and it continues to drag on and doctors have no answers. And I was bitten by a tick in Spain in 2013 and I was very sick for about a year and a half and I continued to have lingering results of that for a number of years. And so I know what it's like to have chronic illness and to have the frustration of of doctors saying, we just don't understand enough about why this happens to some people. And I think that I'm seeing that with COVID now too. And so, uh, you know, I feel for the people who are, are, you know, having ongoing challenges. I've heard stories of folks that 
have a fever for two days and then they're fine. And I've heard, you know, other stories of, of nightmare symptoms for months on end. Uh, you know, and certainly I watch out for it. I don't, I'm trying to be as careful as I can about it. I, I'm not in the mood for another chronic health problem. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And particularly, I guess, with a young family uh, that... Uh, exactly. Yeah. So you've got sort of particular priorities to look for. What do you hope music's going to look like for them as they get older? It's funny because I, you know, I do think about this from time to time. And I think about the immersive technologies and where you know, where music is going to end up in 2030, 2040, and, and what will, for example, a music festival or a club venue look like at that time. And, you know, I think music has been a, a, a pretty constant over generations and centuries that music is something that, you know, tribes of people uh, used to get together to listen to as entertainment. And so I don't think that that kind of social interaction aspect of it is going to go away, even though, you know, in, in today's COVID times, it's a little bit different. But I, you know, I, I think that there will be, again, more immersive technologies as AI continues to grow. You're going to see probably more AI generated music. Not sure that's a great thing. Maybe it is. I think, uh, you know, I think there are benefits uh, to that, and I, you know, just to, going back to the music and medicine study, there's there are some companies that are working on AI generated music that treats certain conditions for certain people. So the ability to create a custom, either a custom playlist of existing music for a certain person to treat them, or the ability to actually have a computer compose music that treats a certain condition, uh, I think is a really interesting you know thing to come in the future. But, you know, who knows? It's an evolution uh, in, in 1990, 2000. Uh, I'm not sure that we had a complete idea of what was coming. I think we had a, a basic idea of what was coming. But uh, Do you think so? Do you, do you think we ever see what's coming before it gets here or, or is it always a surprise? Because it strikes me that there's a lot of stuff that you look around and say, like, I could not have guessed that. Maybe you're better at this than I am. No, I think that you can look and you can say, well, this may happen and this may not happen. And and it's, you know, a lot of times it's not the technology capability. It's the desire for someone to actually, uh, you know, be interested in that. Right. So, uh, you know, it's a, again, it took 15 years for people to or for for a critical mass to decide that they wanted to pay for access to music as opposed to. Uh, owning their music and and you just never know i mean there there are all kinds of technologies and products that are developed that could be great but for whatever reason the general public decides that that's not the way they want to live their lives or consume music or or interact with music sure yeah it's hard it's it's hard to predict i think you can see the potential for certain technologies you just never know what the adoption is going to look like Hmm. I think most people I speak to, when it comes to their music consumption technologies, they're some mix of early adopter, super enthusiastic about what's coming next, pragmatic about what they have and what they use and what's kind of current, and nostalgic about the stuff that they used to buy and the way that they used to consume music. What's what's your ratio looking like? It's a little bit in the middle. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm nostalgic and that... uh you know, actually, the first thing that I do every morning is I, I'm the one that gets our kids up and, and we go downstairs and they want to choose a vinyl to listen to while we make breakfast. So mm. I'm nostalgic for that. I'm excited about, you know, the future of, of music and technology. You know, I think that 
people's attention spans today are are probably a little too short to accurately or to always, you know, really appreciate some of the stuff that's created and everybody is so busy and you have TikTok with short snippets of music. And so, you know, sometimes I, I enjoy listening to a full song and understanding what it's about or listening to a full album. But I also understand that, you know, there are crazy dance moves that you can make on TikTok that people are going to smile at. And, and it's an appropriate use of, you know, a short segment of music. Mm. And an opportunity for licensing and, and for lawyers to get involved, I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Alan, thanks so much for your time today. It's been brilliant. Thanks for having me on. Cheers. That's Alan Bargfried. His book, Music Law in the Digital Age, is available wherever you get books online that you're not currently boycotting. And sounds like we're not too far away from an update either. Alan is at Alan Barg on Twitter. That's A-L-L-E-N-B-A-R-G. I'm Dubba. You'll find me at Dubba on Twitter. Music Tech Fest is at Music Tech Fest absolutely everywhere you socially mediate, except TikTok, because, you know, there's a limit. The MTF podcast is out every Friday, so don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already, and you can do that anywhere you like to listen. Naturally, it'd be great if you'd also share, like, rate, and review, partly because it helps other people to find us, and partly because we love to hear what you think. This episode was edited by Sergio Castillo. That lovely music at the beginning was by Yehezkel Raz. And what you can hear in the background now, that's by an artist called Airtone. The MTF audio logo that you're going to hear just in a moment, that was created by Run Dreamer. In fact, here it comes now. You have a great week. Talk soon. Cheers.